Hi, and welcome to GCs in the House, a podcast spotlighting general counsels. I'm your host, Lena Guo. In my conversations with GCs, we discuss how they got in the top legal seat, obstacles that they had to overcome along the way, and how they are tackling new challenges. Hi, and thanks for joining me. My conversation today is with Scott Willoughby, SVP, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary at Sangamo Therapeutics, a publicly traded biotech company based in the Bay Area. After graduating UC Berkeley School of Law, Scott began his legal career as a corporate attorney at Latham & Watkins. He was in-house counsel in various industries and companies like Clorox, Uber, and McKesson before landing in the world of life sciences. Scott shares his thoughts on key skills GCs need to be successful, how passion and fascination can go a long way as an attorney in the biotech world, and how to evaluate opportunities in this volatile industry. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, It's so nice to have you on my podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Lena. This is such a great opportunity for me, and I feel honored that uh, you asked me to do this. So very excited to be here. So nice to have you. We've known each other over the years, and uh, I, I would love for the audience to learn a little bit about you and 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 what's led you to Sangamo. But to start, can you just tell us a little bit about Sangamo Therapeutics, your current company? Sure thing. So Sangamo Therapeutics is a genomic medicine company. So we are a small cap biotech in uh, pre-commercial in the R&D stage, and we work on developing medicines for patients in need across a variety of therapeutic areas. Uh, Some of those include hemophilia A, a rare disease called Fabry disease. We've got therapies in development for some autoimmune indications like kidney transplants and uh, multiple sclerosis, IBD. Um, We've announced that we've got a a really cool uh, product in development for chronic pain management, which is really important right now, and also some other rare diseases like prion disease. And we've also got some programs targeting kind of bigger picture neurological diseases like Alzheimer's and things like that. So um, we've got a lot going on across a a ton of different uh, genomic medicine technologies, some of which um, your listeners might be familiar with, like traditional gene therapies. We've also got some cell therapy programs and kind of our cutting edge uh, technology involves what we call epigenetic engineering, which is kind of medicines that affect how all of our genes kind of um, express proteins and either suppressing that or increasing the uh, expression of genes to kind of um, meet uh, the needs for these diseases. So um, we were one of the pioneers in the space, actually. I know your listeners have probably heard a lot about kind of CRISPR, uh, which is one of the tools that people use in the space. But we were prior to CRISPR, we were one of the original OGs, I say, in gene editing. And we used a technology called uh, zinc fingers or zinc finger proteins, which kind of do a lot of the same things as CRISPR in a slightly different way. So we do. We, we have a lot of partnerships, too, with big pharma companies like Pfizer and Takeda, and we used to have some partnerships with other big pharma companies that you probably heard of, like Biogen and Novartis, um, because as a small company, we're always needing to kind of partner with the big pharma companies and, and generate capital that way. And that's another way to kind of get our medicines into the clinic uh, and through the clinic a little bit more quickly. So lots going on. 
Wow, that's pretty incredible. It sounds like there is um, there, there there is certainly a lot of, of science and technology going on um, at Sangamo. And you you didn't start out with a with a science background, right? So what um, to rewind? Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what led you to uh, a, a career in the law? For sure, and and you're exactly right. That um, how did a GC, how does someone become a GC of a biotech without a science background? Because I definitely don't. I was a political science and a French major, so people are sometimes surprised that you can do that. Um, and it definitely, you know, puts the onus on me to keep me on my toes to keep up with mm -hmm. all of our amazing science and technology, um, which kind of adds a whole additional layer of uh, being an attorney at a biotech company um, and, and makes it quite challenging, but also quite uh, fun and energizing. But um, in terms of my background, I grew up in the Midwest because my father was an Air Force officer. He was actually a um, nuclear missile squadron commander, and all of our uh, nuclear missile sites are scattered across most of the Midwest um, generally. So I was born in Kansas and uh, grew up mostly in uh, Nebraska and central Missouri. As my father got redeployed to a variety of bases, I had a little bit of a stint in central California as well at an Air Force base. but. Um, Omaha, Nebraska is really where I, I grew up mostly and where my family still lives. And I went to high school there. <clears throat> my father actually happens to be from kind of the San Diego area, my mother from the New York City, New Jersey area. So it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag in terms of when people ask me where I'm from, I'm kind of like, I'm from everywhere. Um, but when I went to college, because my father was a California resident, even though he lived in the Midwest, he retained his residency in California, ended up at UC Berkeley, which was uh, an awesome school to to go to and uh, really got exposed to the Bay Area at that point, decided I was sick of moving around my whole life growing up and just wanted to stay in one place. So I've literally been in the Bay Area since I went to college uh, many, many years ago um, and uh, ended up going to UC Berkeley School of Law um, almost right after UC Berkeley undergrad and have been in uh, San Francisco living here since 1996. So um, in terms of the, the legal path, I was kind of one of those weird kids that always wanted to be a lawyer growing up. You know, maybe I watched too much L.A. Law or something when I was little. I'm dating myself. I don't know if people remember that show. Harry Hamlin was kind of like my idol back then. And it just seemed like a great career for people with a lot of interest in kind of verbal and written communication. And my parents would say I was argumentative out of the womb and, and just, you know, was one of those kids that always liked to um, argue and debate. And it just seemed like a great career for that. Um, you know, I have no lawyers in my family and, and we didn't really know any lawyers growing up. So I kind of decided that without a lot of knowing what I was getting into, my family really wanted me to be an engineer. Um, and so I actually started out as a math major in college, but quickly realized that even though I loved math and was good at it, it didn't spark the same sort of passion as in my other classes where I did get to kind of exercise those verbal communication skills a little bit more. So I ended up uh, just figuring out that law was for me. Um, I did take a year off in between undergrad and law school working at Oracle, um, you know, big tech company here in Silicon Valley for a year in their legal department, because I just wanted to really confirm for myself that law was what I wanted to do before I dove into law school. And so I, I worked in their in-house legal department for a year and it really confirmed my interest in the law. And frankly, at that moment was when I really decided that I wanted to end up um, in in-house, right? Um, I, I got to see how all of the lawyers at Oracle interacted 
you know, as part of the business. And uh, so even though I spent, you know, six years at Latham and Watkins in the law firm world, I, I kind of always knew I would end up in an in-house legal department eventually after that experience at Oracle. That was, it sounds like you were really smart about it, like tried out, tried out uh, the, what it was like to be in-house at Oracle, got a feel for what it's like, what it's like to be an attorney before you kind of really, really committed. And that's the smart way to go. Some, some people like myself, similar to you, kind of <laughs> see what it's like to be a lawyer on TV and then just that, and then realize, wow, this is not what, um, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Um, and so even though your parents said you came out of the room very, you know, very argumentative and, and um, could, could debate, instead of going the, the litigation route, you started out as a corporate attorney. I did. And, and when I look back, I'm kind of surprised at that myself. But, you know, um, working at Oracle really kind of, I think, got me excited about kind of transactional work and more corporate side work, which is, you know, um, at the end of the day, corporate transactions end up ideally with both parties, you know, really happy about building something together and doing a deal. Whereas, you know, all my litigator friends used to say that, you know, even if you win a lawsuit, you've kind of lost, right? I mean, nobody wants to be in, in a lawsuit to begin with. And so, Back then, it was also the dot-com boom for those of people that have been in the Bay Area. It was the late 90s, early 2000s. And um, that was the time when so many companies were going public and so many companies were, you know, developing these innovative technologies. And, and I just thought that being a corporate attorney was really kind of a better way to be part of that. Um, you know, I have such respect for people in litigation and, and it's it's such a fascinating space. But just for me, I really wanted to be part of that building out uh, building out organizations and really helping advance innovative technologies. And so being a corporate slash SEC and M&A attorney just seemed, um, you know, a little bit more aligned with that. And, you know, being an M&A attorney too, you do get a little bit of that kind of argumentative part of it on all the negotiations. So I think that still fed that argumentative side of me as well. Wow. And what a great time, as you mentioned, it must have been to be a corporate attorney um, to be like in in Silicon Valley and in, uh, in the, the epicenter of everything that was happening in the early 2000s. And then what what led you to into into your first in-house role, which was at Clorox? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was at Latham for about six years. I knew it was probably time to start pursuing in-house roles. And it was a little bit of serendipity that I had kind of a friend, um, not a lawyer friend, uh, who worked at Clorox in corporate communications and said, you know, hey, a lot of people in the Bay Area don't know about Clorox, right? Um, and they mm -hmm. don't think of it as, as it's one of the, you know, the oldest companies in the Bay Area. It's been around for over 100 years, headquartered in Oakland, and um, they do just such a, a wide diversity of consumer products. Um, and so when this role came open, I um, chatted with Clorox and just really became enamored with their business and, and the consumer products world. And it was uh, an amazing place to be. So I, I started there as a pretty junior in-house attorney and spent nine years there um, doing a variety of things. And you know, people don't really know a lot about consumer products, but it just covers so many different areas of the law. Um, I got to travel the world. Um, they have business, you know, they have offices everywhere. I got to 
do joint ventures and train people on SCPA and compliance matters in you know places like Egypt and the Philippines. And I spent a ton of time in Saudi Arabia doing uh, joint ventures and M&A deals. And it was just such an amazing place to work, such a disciplined kind of well-respected company that uh, was a wonderful place to learn the, the ropes of in-house practice with amazing you know, general counsel who, who just taught me really how to be an excellent in-house attorney. So I know staying at a job nine years right now is, is kind of unheard of in-house, That's but right. back then, uh, you know, back then it was, it was perfect for me and, and I loved it. And it was such a, an amazing uh, disciplined company and uh, a great experience there. It sounds certainly sounds like it, and you're right. Clorox has is has been in the Bay Area for what seems like forever, and yet so so few many people so few people think of them um, mm -hmm. because people auto automatically think of tech. But it is a it really is a fantastic company with a really great legal team, and so you were there for about almost ten years, um, and then you ended up working in many different industries. How did you end up in the life sciences space? Yeah, you know, I'm one of those weird people that has hopped industries. I, I don't know if the trend seems more now people pick tech or or biotech or what have you, but I've, uh, yeah. I feel like it's been a huge um, enabler of my career because I always tell people um, learning how to adjust your counseling style and your lawyering style to the industry you're in, to the culture and company that you're in is such a, a, a secret sauce to becoming a good in-house attorney and frankly a great GC as well. And so after Clorox, I, I left at the opportunity to go work at Uber Technologies, which frankly could not be more 180 degrees different than Clorox, you know, mm -hmm. really innovative uh, early stage company at Uber. Um, I didn't end up staying there that long, but it was just such an amazing I uh, think counterpoint to my experience at Clorox and really got me into that fast paced uh, world of, of, you know, early stage tech and was a really awesome experience as well. From there, I ended up following a friend to McKesson doing M&A work sort of uh, in the healthcare space. That was my first exposure there doing billion dollar M&A deals for them. You know, they're very acquisitive and they're another one of those mm -hmm. companies that's been around or that used to be, and they actually moved their headquarters, but they they are a longstanding uh, Bay Area company. And um, at that point, you know, I realized at McKesson, such a great legal department, amazing team, but you it was this kind of company that you really had to stick around there, uh, you know, 10, 12 plus years to really get that kind of senior level exposure, um, just because people don't leave because they love, love working there. And so um, I had a friend, a sort of acquaintance rather, who was GC of a small biotech company called Akeagen, who kind of recruited me to leave McKesson and go work for him. He was a former Genentech guy, really well respected, and was the GC of a small biotech company. And, you know, I, I really thought twice about it because it was leaving my comfort zone of working at very large uh, companies. And it would be my first exposure to that really small small kind of uh, startup world. Um, and I left at it because I knew that it was really hard for, uh, in life sciences, if you don't have that life sciences background, it could be hard to get into that space. And so I sort of left that opportunity to go work with him and to get in, in there and, and get really more of that senior executive and board exposure that I wasn't going to be able to get at the big companies without you know a, a big investment of time in my career. Um, and 
you know, I think one of the lessons there too is just that this was an acquaintance that I sat on a couple of legal panels with and and kept in touch with. And I feel so grateful that I got this opportunity to go work for him as one of his deputies there, because it did give me exposure to this whole other world of uh, biotechnology that I probably wouldn't have had without that personal contact with them. And so I spent a couple of years there at Akeagen. They they developed innovative antibiotics. It was such a great experience. I got amazing exposure to you know the board and, and the senior executives and just how to develop and launch and get approved a medicine. Um, unfortunately, it did result in the company running out of money, even though we had approved medicine. And um, even though it was kind of a tragic situation, I did get to kind of shepherd the company through a chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, which I don't recommend, but which from a legal <laughs> perspective, which is really great. Um, and then it's just opened so many doors for me in terms of other uh, experiences in the biotech world. And uh, from there, I ended up at Sangamo following uh, my general counsel. And, and when he left, uh, they promoted me. So I feel very grateful to be in this world now. And, and I'm definitely drawing on all my great experiences from all the other big companies that I've had in a variety of industries and kind of bringing all that to bear in what I do at Sangamo. Wow. And and like you said, I, I do think it's hard. It does seem harder to jump from one industry to another nowadays. Um, to, people seem to typically stick within uh, the same industry. And it, it is it does become more difficult to, to get hired into a, a different industry um, when you don't have the experience. So it's really great to see that you you really were able to, um, like you said, be be agile and to learn from the, the different types of companies and industries that you were in. And so given what had happened at Akeagen and, you know, the market being what it is, what are some of the significant kind of legal and regulatory challenges that faces a biotech company like Sangamo? Yeah, you know, biotech is such a unique industry. I mean, you can literally be a public company in biotech and you literally have no product, right? For years and years and years, you have no product revenue. And I, I can't think of any other industry like that. I mean, you might be a software company and not be profitable, but you at least have a product, right? Where you're, mm -hmm. you have customers. Like we don't even have a product. So we are literally um, a pure play R&D company developing medicines. And it's a you know highly speculative industry and business biotech, frankly. Um, you can have all of the best and hottest scientists and smartest scientists in the world. Um, and you can have the best ideas and the best laboratory research results. But then when you get in the clinic and start putting it into actual patients, it can you know, thrive or it cannot. And so it's, um, it's just a fascinating world to be in because science does what science does, right? And so um, you spend you know, tens of millions of dollars developing medicines on a highly speculative basis that can end up in a you know, uh, a medicine that, that gets purchased by big pharma or that leads to, you know, bankruptcy and, and uh, dissolution of the company. So it's a very wild west sort of industry and it's always looking for partnerships and external capital to fuel uh, the pipeline and development of these therapies. And so as a lawyer, it just it, it makes it very fascinating, very challenging. You have a lot of um, regulatory uh, requirements, obviously. You've got all of the FDA regulations, all of the, uh, we call them good clinical practices, good lab practices, good manufacturing practices, all sorts of compliance requirements, but you don't have a huge legal department or a lot of cash, frankly, to uh, to manage through them. And so it makes it very 
um, interesting as a legal department to try to manage all of those compliance challenges, given that uh, limited footprint you have. Um, beyond that, IP and, and patents in particular are such a key component of biotech that you always have a very robust patent portfolio to manage through and lots of infringements, risks to manage through in addition. Um, and on top of that, you've got your you know public company um, challenges of, of making sure you're staying compliant with all of the evolving SEC and NASDAQ regulations um, and all of this in an atmosphere where your cash runway tends to be very limited and you're always needing to develop more cash to, to fuel your, your pipeline. Because again, you don't have product revenues to rely on here. You're, you're purely relying on uh, investment capital of, of um, you know, to, to, to fuel all this. So very fun, very challenging. Um, it's a very unique environment. I mean, I can't think of any other industries that, that have this particular set of challenges, but for me, it's been, uh, very fun and uh, a great way to stretch uh, my legal skills and, and stretch my career. Sounds like it, especially at a at a pre-commercial company. Um, it sounds like it's certainly a roller coaster ride and not not one for the faint of heart. And you <laughs> no. and you joined Singamo in the early days of the pandemic. So looking back, what are some of the notable changes that the company and legal department have had to weather over the years? Yeah, you know. Such interesting times, right? Over the past um, three or four years in the whole world, and definitely in in biotech as well. I mean, biotech went from being, you know, the hottest industry on the planet during COVID, right? I mean, look at how Pfizer, Moderna, and all the vaccine manufacturers kind of saved saved humanity in some way, right? And so that right. led to a lot of additional investment in biotech, and I, I still think that. You know, while biotech again, the the winds have kind of reversed, and so um, there's less interest in investing in biotech right now because it is such a speculative uh, industry, and investors are a little bit more picky right now. But I, I still think that over time, you're just going to see more and more investment in this space as there's more um, scientific developments to really extend the human lifespan and really tackle some of the biggest. Um, you know, healthcare challenges facing humanity, whether that's cancer or Alzheimer's or heart disease. And so, um, you know, I think COVID was really an inflection point where it brought a lot more attention to the space. Um, on a personal level, it was very interesting because when I interviewed at Sangamo, it was in, I think, February of 2020. And that was just when we all learned what Zoom was, right? And started <laughs> to, the whole world started changing, right? And yeah. we really started to, uh, do everything over video conference. All of my interviews were on Zoom. I never met, then when I got hired, I never, literally never met the team in person um, that I worked with for like 18 months, which is just cr a crazy to look back at that time. Um, and then when I got promoted to GC, I had to hire a bunch of people on my team and many of them uh, ended up being remote hires. And again, a, a, a sea change in kind of how I think legal departments uh, were developed and managed because before that, you know, everybody had to be on site five days a week. And over COVID, we realized that that was sort of unnecessary. And so now my team's on site about two or three days a week. And then I've got a handful of attorneys who are also um, remote attorneys. And so huge sea change. And I think how we think about the way our ways of working, I, I think the tides are starting to change a little bit. Uh, to go back to more in-office time and maybe fewer uh, fully remote employees. But I still think 
uh, those trends are going to, you know, endure. So definitely an interesting time to be practicing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to it's it's nice to hear that you and your team were able to at least shift to a hybrid model during COVID because I know that some some companies in the biotech space were still very much a you know five days a week in office uh, even even during even during COVID. Um, and you had mentioned that you had mentioned your your old GC left and and then you were promoted to GC and that that doesn't always happen for for you know deputies or or the VP of corporate when when the the, the old GC kind of moves on sometimes sometimes they they bring in someone else so you know, can you can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in 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 the GC role at Sangamo? Sure. And, and, you know, again, I feel very grateful. I mean, and to be honest, I had to interview for it, right? Uh, there was definitely a ability for the CEO to go externally. Um, mm -hmm. He frankly didn't know me that well. He'd been there about a year and a half, but it didn't feel in any way that long because a big chunk of that was um, during during uh, COVID and Zoom. So I probably didn't have as much you know, FaceTime with the CEO as I as I would have liked before going through the interview process just because of COVID. Uh, but to his credit, he really had um, a belief in kind of nurturing talent, and he knew this would be my first general counsel role. He also had, I think, great faith in my former GC, who I followed from, you know, multiple companies and who developed me really well and kind of teed me up for this role and so i feel like i convinced the ceo that um i could bring all that to bear with him and that you know i would um uh you know make him happy and make the board happy i interviewed with a lot of board members as well and i think they all saw something in me that uh you know um, i had potential and um gave me the opportunity so i, I feel very grateful about for that and um you know, it's definitely something I try to pay forward, right? And in, in realizing that giving people first-time opportunities is such a great and important way to sort of develop the legal talent as a whole. And it's it's so easy to just say you want to hire people that have done a role before exactly what you're looking for, but there's also a huge merit in in giving people those opportunities and letting them develop and grow into it. And in some ways, you generate, I think, more goodwill and loyalty through that in some cases than just, you know, hiring somebody off the shelf who could do, do the role right away. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, that's very, that's a very um, wise observation. And you, know, you mentioned your, your, your former GC who, who sounded like was a, was a mentor over the years. Um, what, what were some of the other kind of critical factors that helped you land this role, uh, especially as you were interviewing with the CEO, with the board? And was there any feedback about what you what you did particularly well or kind of your skill set or knowledge that helped you that helped set you apart from from other candidates? You know, I, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I do think that people looked at my resume and were like, wow, this this guy's been an attorney in a variety of different companies across a variety of different industries. And where I think some more, you know, provincial viewpoints would have said, oh, he hasn't been in biotech that long. I think people that read through um, my background could see that there was some learning skills there that could be adjusted and tailored to a variety of different industries, to a variety of different company cultures, a variety of different leadership teams. Um, and, you know, I always say being 
an successful in-house attorney really you you if that's reading the room and really applying your lawyering to the people that you're you're counseling and and learning what's important for the company learning diving into new areas of law that you may not be super expert with but kind of learning how to advise people about the various risks applicable to those areas of law and adjusting it to the uh, risk appetite of your leadership team and of the the industry and so i think people saw, started to see that um, as more of a plus rather than a negative of me kind of being in these variety of different industries because they could see that they're you, you know being in a variety of different companies you do just bring to bear i think a lot of different um adjustment of your learning style um and frankly, um, you know, I think I was able to just develop good relationships with people. I mean, ultimately, being a, a GC, you're on a leadership team, right? You're, yes, you're the head of legal, but you're on a team. And um, being able to fit into the team and bring a different set of perspectives and ideas, and frankly, not being in life sciences that long, in some ways, I like to think that I can help translate their highly technical jargon sometimes to our investors, in some cases who may have less scientific aptitude, but just communicating these uh, innovative technologies and platforms that we have in ways that resonate a little bit more with the general public and with our variety of stakeholders. Because sometimes when you're so in the weeds and something that becomes more challenging, whereas my lack of scientific background sometimes I think can be uh, almost a virtue sometimes on, the, on those communication needs so what advice do you have for attorneys with an eye towards becoming a gc at a biotech company yeah i mean again biotech um you know is only going to grow as an industry but i i do think that in general um the biotech community likes people that have a passion for the science right a passion for um healthcare and for helping patients in need and um some fluency, I think, with scientific concepts is always helpful, whether you get that through exposure to, you know, um, the healthcare industry more broadly or biotech more specifically is always helpful. Um, but um, in terms of being a GC, I, I just always tell people that curiosity is a huge one. I mean, you're going to be dealing with so many different areas of, of laws and regulations, many of which you may have not had exposure to before. And if you get energized and jazzed by diving in and kind of figuring out how those work, and not to say that you need to be the expert, but learning how to frame issues in which you're not an expert for a more general audience, I think is a really big component of being a successful GC anywhere, but especially in a biotech company with the, the wide variety of legal and compliance risks. Um, and I think you have to love counseling a variety of different types of personalities, right? I mean, on my leadership team alone, if I look across, you know, research and development and the CEO and uh, our manufacturing, they're all kind of different personalities and bringing different backgrounds and um, levels of, of sophistication to a variety of, of legal topics and, and learning how to um, coach and counsel them differently based on their needs and then their personalities, I think is a really key skill for being a good GC. Um, developing talent, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I have such an amazing team um, that, you know, do such an amazing job for the company and, and learning how to find um, opportunities to, to develop them and, and let them grow and shine and um, kind of nourish their own career and professional and personal um, you know, uh, interests, I think is really key. And, you know, there's always this little piece of me that's like, 
I wake up, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing some days and I'm dealing with stuff that I've never done before. And just learning to deal with that fear and, and have it um, be exciting to you rather than something that paralyzes you, right? Um, and, and generating that confidence that you can figure stuff out, that you know how to lean on uh, external and internal advisors to help you figure something out that you may not be comfortable with. Um, and, and just building that confidence, staying humble, learning how to illustrate those risk curves, um, all things that I, I talk about when I think about being a great GC. Wow, that's a very comprehensive list. Thank you, thank you, Scott. And um, there, are, there are certainly so many things, uh, so many factors to tackle and learn and to excel at. How, if, for example, when you mentioned counseling different different types of people in in leadership or R and D, like how how were you able to d hone that skill? Was it just time and experience? Was it you know books and coaching? Can you expand up expand upon that a little bit? Sure. I mean, there's no substitute for experience um, and no substitute for, I think, just building relationships with people. And that does take time. Um, I think being a good listener, um, being humble, uh, and I think in, in biotech in particular, like I work with some of the most brilliant scientists and clinicians and engineers in the world, right, working on hugely cutting edge innovative stuff that honestly to me as a non-scientist literally seems magical sometimes. I'm like, wow, like how do how do mm -hmm. we do that? And I, I think staying humble and and learning to listen um, and learning that, you know, as lawyers, we obviously have our own expertise and uh, you know areas of knowledge that we feel expert at. But I think just being passionate about what we're doing, being curious, building relationships with people and, and staying humble and, and letting those relationships kind of evolve over time is super key. And people will, you'll find, love to talk about what they do. They love to educate others on what they do. And they love when people are, are as fascinated about what they do as they are. And so I think it's really important in these uh, scientific areas to show some sense of passion and fascination with what um, the rest of the team is doing because it just really gives you credibility as a counselor and enables you to better advise them. And so I can always sense the, you know, when, when an attorney is sort of a mid-level attorney, sometimes we're under this perception that we have to be the smartest person in the room. And I think as we get more senior, we realize that that's actually can be a detriment, right? Our skill as a GC is not being the most the smartest person in the world in the room. It's really realizing that um, we have so much more to learn, and it's really bringing the wisdom to it rather than the smartness, if that makes sense. Um, and just continuing to be a constant learner and uh, listener, I think for me has been how I've been successful in my role. That is a very humbling mindset to have, and given yeah it's in the the biotech industry is is very exciting but and you had alluded to it it can be a bit volatile what factors would you recommend candidates consider when evaluating a gc role at a biotech company this day and age yeah that's a great question i mean there's such a variety of different biotechs um i don't think there's one right way to evaluate a company and i will say that as you alluded to, um, this is a volatile industry. So if it's important to you that um, 
you're going to have a role for, you know, five, seven, nine plus years. Honestly, small cap <laughs> biotech might not be for you because companies come and go. It's just the nature of, of the industry, right? And as I mentioned, you know, scientific and clinical developments can, you know, elevate a company quickly and it can grow quickly or it can, it cannot, and it can dissolve or, um, or shrink. And so you have to be, I think, prepared for that um, and be willing to deal with that on, on a personal level because it can be very challenging for people who don't have, I think, the right mindset and ability to deal with that level of volatility. Um, and that said, no matter what you do in terms of your due diligence in a company, like I said, you know, things change. The winds of what's hot in biotech change. Um, cash, ability to raise cash changes over time. And so there's a lot of external factors you just by the nature of industry, you won't have control over. Um, but I will say that I always tell people, you know, looking for that cultural fit with the company. I mean, life's too short to be working with people that you don't have some sort of, um, you know, fit with, that you don't feel simpatico with. And so really assessing, is this a leadership team that I want to join or where I can feel that my voice will be heard and I can thrive? Um, where you know, the GC role is given pride of place, I think, alongside the CFO and head of R&D, right? And, and I think biotech, for the most part, respects the legal field just because of its crucial importance to things like IP and, and, and the regulatory piece of things, but always making sure that the GC is going to be there at the table for the, the most key strategic uh, business decisions, I think, is really important. Um, you know, the relationship with the CEO, I think, can't be um, undervalued. I mean, making sure that you and your uh, prospective CEO have a, a, you know, an ability to work together and, and that you feel like you can trust this person and, and you kind of have different uh, similar viewpoints when it comes to things like compliance and ethics and just uh, ways of working together, I think is key. Um, looking at the cash runway of the company, you know, cash right now is really hard to raise. And so the more cash is king and if, you, if your company has cash to get through the next three to five years instead of the next one to two years, that is definitely a key piece of the puzzle in terms of um, thinking about whether it's a company that you might think has legs. Um, um, also making sure that you're passionate about, you know, the science and medicines that are being developed. Um, I really am a true believer in that you have to be passionate about the mission and the values of the organization that you join. Otherwise, you just won't thrive in the role and frankly, you won't be happy. And so joining a company where you feel like you're going to be able to go to your friends and family and rave about you know how excited you are to be there if, if you can't do that i would always advise people like well you know it's probably not the company for you because you're not going to be successful in the gc role if you can't be a part of that mission um, statement and uh, the company values and culture and so finding either the science or the technology or the therapeutic areas that you can rave about and are passionate about that's how you're going to be successful as well Thank you, Scott. That's all really amazing advice. And especially at, at this senior level of a role, like you said, if you're if you're not passionate about the the mission of the company or um, or or just the science and the people, then um, it's it's really not at the end of the day, it's not going to be a fulfilling job at all. 
Well, you know, it's this has been a great conversation, and I always ask my guests, "What do you do to decompress?" Especially given um, just all that you have to tackle in this role and in and in in this industry, um, what do you do to stay sane? Oh gosh, um, you know, I, I live in San Francisco, which I still think, despite its current challenges, is one of the most fun and exciting places in the world to live. Um, so I feel very grateful about that. Um, you know, my partner and I bought a house in this cute neighborhood called Corona Heights um, about 18 months ago, and we spent a lot of time kind of fixing it up and and remodeling it. And so that takes up a lot of our time. Um, we always get up to Sonoma County a ton. Um, we love kind of wine country and the Hulesburg area and uh, hanging out at the Russian River up there and just, you know, enjoying all the fruits of the Bay Area. Um, my dog just passed away a while ago, so we're kind of in the market for a new dog, sadly. Um, so we love to go with our dog and hit all the parks and beaches and things like that. We've, we've developed also a new hobby playing uh, pickleball, which is this sport that seems to be taking over the nation, which is kind of yes. uh, an interesting place, uh, sport, but it's super fun. I don't know. Have you played Lena? Pickleball. I have, I have not. Um, I I am a, a tennis fan, but I have I have not gotten around to it. But I always look with a I I always I always look with admiration when people are playing. Um, I should I should really I should re really give it a chance. You should. It's such a great workout. It's super easy to learn and pick up, and it's just a great excuse to get outside and sweat a little and hang out with your friends and. It's been super fun. I'm actually shocked how much fun we're having with it. Because um, I always thought it was something you did in your 70s and uh, we're yeah. not there yet. So, uh, <laughs> but it's super fun. Um, and, you know, we love to cook, have dinner parties, hang out in the city, travel, all the normal stuff. So, uh, you know, we feel really blessed to, to live here in San Francisco with such a great community. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is the Bay Area is definitely one of the. Um, I'm also I'm also impart I'm also partial, but um, this is definitely one of the best places to live. So I'm glad sure. that you're you're finding time to be to be able to enjoy uh, enjoy the outdoors and 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 friends and family, especially given um, how how stressful I think the the GC role can be and and in in an industry that can be quite volatile. So, um, well, well, Scott, this has been a really great conversation and I've so enjoyed learning more about you and, and your path to becoming a general counsel. So thank you so much for, for your time and for chatting with me. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you for the conversation, Alina. I feel again, honored to speak with you and appreciate the fact that you're doing this because it's been fascinating to listen to all of your podcasts and learn about the journeys of some of my fellow general counsels. So thank you. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening to GCs in the House. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me next time for an in-depth discussion with another general counsel. I welcome your feedback and recommendations for guests. You can reach me at lguo at mlaglobal.com. Please also reach out if you have any questions or comments about today's episode. Until next time.